The following is a pre recorded program. Uh, 906 at News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here on a Monday night. It's not exactly stormy, but it is a dark, it could be a dark and stormy night, but it's a damp one. Uh, we're here tonight, as we are every night, Monday through Friday from 9 until 10, and we have a very special guest with us tonight. He is the author of, uh, let me see if, we, see if this electronic stuff works. Oh, shall I call you OSHA, or would you prefer something else? Oh, no, OSHA's fine. Okay. Uh, his name is OSHA Gray Davidson. Uh, he has a book called The Best of Enemies, which, OSHA, I'm right in that it was originally published about 10 or 11 years ago. Uh, it was actually published in 1996 originally, 19. Okay. and then it was brought out in paperback. Uh, about 10 years ago. Okay, 2007, and it is, has been reissued in paperback now, but we've got something even even better. Uh, it says on the front of mine, now a major motion picture. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's, um, I think they've had a showing of it at the Carolina Theater in Durham on March 19th. That slipped by me, but the uh, I guess the date that would be regarded as the premiere of this motion picture will be April 5th. Is that not the case? That's the uh, the opening date across the country in movie theaters, yeah. Okay, all right. And uh, uh, so uh, OSHA is going to be with us tonight. We're going to be talking about the book and hope you will be inspired to get— I, I enjoyed reading the book, and it's a good piece of history. Uh, and it's uh, a history of race relations in parts of the South and speci specifically Durham, but it focuses on two unlikely— People, I guess we can call them our heroes, but uh, who are not likely to be. They are the best of enemies, and, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Just before we came on the air, uh, Osha and I were speaking to each other, and I told him that I, I like I like each of his ch chapters in this book. Has I, Osha, you're the writer. I think they're called epigraphs, aren't they? Epigrams? Yes, sir, they are. Okay, and uh, I like books. I, I think it, books that have those at the beginning of each chapter are classy books. That recommends them before <laughs> you even get started on them. But uh, the woman's name is Mary Mebbin, and, and it's at the beginning of chapter 13, and then we can, we can go wherever we want to go after that. Uh, if I may read, my problems sure. started, Mary says, when I began to comment on what I saw. I insisted on being accurate, but the world I was born into didn't want that. Indeed, its very survival depended on not knowing, not seeing, and certainly not saying anything at all about what it really was like. Mary Mebbin from a Durham memoir. And you were saying that's a good bit of what the book is about. Uh, that's right, and that's why chapter 13 is the final chapter of the book, and it seemed like the right place to put that because... Um, you know, it's the old idea of tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And Mary Mabin's quote really sums up what what the story is about. And that you know, there are two there are two levels to it. Of course, there's the the surface level that's an important story in its own right. And that you know, how did this guy, a white guy who's the head of the Durham Ku Klux Klan, get to be friends? With Ann Atwater, who was a, um, she sometimes would call herself a civil rights worker, and I know that's used a lot for her, but usually it was a community organizer. So a black woman who is a militant community organizer 
how how did they get to be friends? It's just so un, unlikely. Um, but what interested me more was the the context of the story, the history of race and class, what's now called the intersection of race and class and gender issues. And Mary Maven was talking about that, that not seeing the world the way it was. And that's what led to C.P. Ellis, the Klansman, change, was Anne helping him to understand that the world as it is was not the world that he thought it was. Um, he he had been he grew up you know with a myth that white people everywhere grow up with that um, how that we're the norm and he grew up at a particular time and place where white people were superior and he uh, he knew he was struggling to make it his father was. A, uh, a mill worker in Durham and died at the age of 48 from brown lung. Can, can I say he was a cotton mill worker right, in, in Durham? Right. Right, because right. it was a big, big industry in Durham at the same time as tobacco, and so sure. it, it makes a difference, yeah. That's right. And he was, um, C.P. struggled all his life. I mean, he was born into poverty, and he stayed poor, and he, he married at a very young age, dropped out of school to work. He didn't work in the mills himself. Uh, he wanted to avoid that, but he couldn't get ahead, and his father was a Klansman. And CP, um, one night, saw that there was a, a Klan rally, and he went to it, and he felt like he was now, he could become part of something, because he was just, you know, he was what was considered and called poor white trash. Then and I, I think that term is is still used far too often uh, for uh, white people without much money, and he this gave him some place to stand in the community. He felt he was part of something bigger than himself. So that he also made the point that the Klan wasn't just about hating black people. It was also about, for him, as a member of the Klan, it was having um, this fellowship that he didn't find in a church. And he never under he didn't understand how awful this organization was um, in, wh in what it was doing, because he bought into this idea. He truly believed that black people were the main threat, and they were the ones keeping him down. And it was... Anne Atwater, who helped him make sense of the world that the way it was, which was that black people in Durham at that time had no ability to keep poor white people down. It was the people of of uh, CP's race and class that served as a buffer between the wealthy whites in Durham and the poor black community. And he was doing their bidding, thinking that they respected him. And they didn't. They made sly comments about him being a limp head, um, the term for people in the factor, in the textile mill areas. Um, and he, he 
finally through Anne helped see the world as it was, which was that class really defined his life far more than race did. And that's and, that's what I'm glad it was. I was going to ask you about that, and you just said what I wanted what the answer to, and that is, you, if you talk about race relations, you really haven't gotten very far or far enough because the element of class relations is as important in some ways as race relations are. Right, and to a large extent, um, racism was invented as a way of keeping um, the social stratification as it was. That's why CP was used as the buffer. Uh, Black workers and white workers were kept at each other's throats so that the wealthy whites could just maintain their position. Can I I stop you? Can I stop you for a second? Because we need to take a break. And I I think I'm going to toss you a softball here. And that is one of the things, and you and I talked a little bit about Tom Watson today on the phone, uh, but this is one of the reasons I think when I studied history, I learned that the populist movement was important. uh, And it was important because it um, was uh, a place where the, the classes got together against the big dogs, so to speak. And, uh, they had to drag out the the uh, the race issue, uh, and that was very prominent, for instance, in North Carolina. And the election of 1900 is one of the most famous elections. Uh, the the uh, poor white had to be remembered that it was the poor black who kept him uh, who who kept him from being at the bottom of the rack, so to speak. And uh, right. and the the political parties that were around then could not allow the poor people to get together if they were black and white. Uh, but it, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Maybe you'll want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. Okay. His name is uh, Osha Gray-Davidson. He is a writer uh, and researcher. And you're a photographer too, aren't you, Osha? <laughs> I am. Okay. Yeah. I think I thought somebody had told me that. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, he has a book about uh, Durham, part of our triangle here, uh, The Best of Enemies. Uh Race and Redemption in the New South. And it is going to be a motion picture. Well, it's going to make its opening across the country on April 5th, which I think is next Friday. Normally, I think motion that's when motion pictures do open, is on Friday. I think new books come out on Tuesday and uh, new movies come out on Friday. But in any event, Osha is on the phone with us tonight. Um, Osha, if, I, don't, I don't imagine you're appearing anywhere in this part of the world, but if you are... At a bookstore or anything like that, you you can tell us about that whenever you you please. But um, this is uh, a reissue in paperback of a book originally published about uh, a little over twenty years ago. But it's about uh, about Durham and race relations in Durham, and the best of enemies enemies is a surprising story about two people you wouldn't expect to see. And I love that scene that you depict, uh, OSHA of. Uh, C, CP is right, isn't it? And uh, yeah. And the the lady uh, is sitting in the room crying and holding hands. Uh, just uh, as you say, nobody would have believed it if they if they hadn't been there. But, but maybe we can come back to that. We'll be back with our program in a moment. Nine twenty one at News Radio six eighty WPTF. Tom Kearney. On a Monday night, uh, we're here. As I said earlier. Monday through Friday, 9 to 10, with a little bit of live and in real-time radio. 
we we are bookish, so we like to talk about books and the book that uh, has come our way that we are talking to the author of tonight is entitled The Best of Enemies, Race and Redemption in the New South. And um, the author is Osha Gray Davidson, and uh, he's on the phone with us tonight from Phoenix, Arizona. And we're talking about the book. It, 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 it says on the front of my copy, it's now a major motion picture. I didn't mention this, Osha, but it's got uh, two, the picture has got, uh, you must be pleased, uh, two very good actors or an actress. And oh, an my actor. gosh, yeah. You, you hit the jackpot. Uh, I, you know what? That's exactly what I, I felt. This has been coming since the book first came out in 1996, that different producers expressed the interest in making it into a movie and it always kept falling apart which is normal I found out for Hollywood that most books that get options don't get made into movies and then finally a man named Robin Bissell who did the movie he was a producer on Sea Biscuit um, and I'm blanking now on Oh, oh, The Hunger Games. Okay. He was also on The Hunger Games. So he, but he had never written or directed a film. So this is his first. And this is a story that he's been wanting to tell for years. And I got to know him just over the phone for a long time. And I knew he was going to do a good job with this. But I had no idea that he would be able to get... Um, actors of the quality of Taraji P. Henson and Sam Rockwell. And they're two of my favorites to begin with. So that's, that's been amazing. I got to meet Taraji in, at the Carolina Theater um, at that premiere that you were talking about. Right. And that was, that was pretty crazy. There were hundreds of screaming fans there. And uh, I... I got 13 seconds with her on an elevator ride, and <laughs> I, my mind just went blank, and I was babbling at her, just like everybody else. Well, uh, I, I understand it's wonderful the people that you meet on elevators, too. Uh, uh, that's true. That's true. The, the, one of the most famous black historians in America is a man you probably know about, John Hope Franklin. Oh, yes, uh, sir. Uh, I used to, I, I went to a couple of historical conventions when I was pretending to be an academic, and uh, and I, I, I'm joking, of course. I was doing more than pretending, but I, I always got on an elevator with Dr. Franklin, and he always looked really sharp. And, you know, he ended up living in Durham, as a matter of fact, and yeah. and being on the faculty and having some responsibilities at Duke. But uh, uh, but it is interesting who you meet meet on the elevator. But I, I was thinking, I was telling Mrs. Kearney, my wife tonight, at, at supper time, that uh, what we were doing tonight, she usually asked me at that point. She never listens, by the way, but, but <laughs> what, we, what we were going to do tonight, she gets the precise of what we were going to do. And uh, But uh, in any event, um, one of the things you do, and, and this is why I mentioned the softball and the, the business about populism, is to, to for, for these people, the, the best of enemies, uh, uh, the uh, C.P. Ellis, I believe, and tell me her name. I mispronounced it when when I told you, Miss. Yeah, Atwell. Ann Atwater. Atwater. That's what I got right. Ann Atwater, uh, who were uh, uh, as different uh, as different could be, uh, 
but you have to fit them into the context. You have to embed them properly, or it doesn't make you. You really don't get the full value of, of their story, because they're living in history, and they're in in many ways a kind of summation of history. Uh, for instance, you mentioned that he is a member of the clan, but this is the third clan. Is the way we, I used to teach Southern history, and it's yeah. the third third edition of the clan, and it's different from the first edition. Uh, and Absolutely, it's, and it's composed of different people and people like him. And you you gave a good. Good, uh, you know, a description. I think of of the group of people who want to belong. Now, where where do we go from here uh, in terms of the background? We we haven't talked any about uh, her background at all. Right. Well, she was um, born in North Carolina, not in Durham, in a small town, and moved to Durham because uh, she became a single mother at the age of I think it was fifteen, and married the man. And he went and got a job in Durham. She followed him there. And, you know, she was from a, a farming community, a small rural black community. And the city was just very different. And she had a hard time. Her husband really did not want to stick around with her, and he didn't. And so she was a, a single mother of... Ah, uh, John, I think we have lost our broadcast there, uh, and what we need to do is to take uh, take a part of the break that we would normally have after the news here, and uh, I'll give you the number, and we'll see if we can get uh, OSHA back. Uh, you can never tell when the electronic stuff can. Can we play a little bit of a break here, John? A little bit of a technical glitch there. We lost our guest tonight. Are you back, OSHA? I am. You can never tell I'm what's going to happen with this electronic stuff. But uh, we've got about a minute before uh, our newscast is, is going to be popping up here. And we were talking about uh, Ann Atwater, I think, and the fact that she had come from rural North Carolina to the big city of Durham. And that her husband, who was French, his name was French, something had, I know he had yeah. run off to Richmond. Uh, and uh, she was a uh, uh, um, single mother then and in the case. And ultimately, I think... Uh, I think you said uh, in the book that she had taken the name Atwater from a guy she had dated at some point. Uh, rather, right. Rather than her, I think she married again, and uh, but that didn't last. Is that the case? I, I think that's that's about it. She did she did not want to talk about things like that in part because she really wanted to talk about the history of what happened between her and CP and okay. about what still needs to be done. And okay, so hold, hold it right there, and we'll talk about that when we come back. The following is a pre-recorded program. 933 News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney with our guest this, this evening, Aisha Gray-Davidson, who is the author of a book. Uh, actually, it's been out over 20 years uh, and has been reissued in paperback twice, most recently just a few within the last few weeks. Uh, the Best of Enemies, Race and Redemption in the New South, a good history of uh, the city of Durham, uh, in part. And uh, it's now a major motion picture, which will debut across America on uh, Friday, April 5th, just a, just a couple of weeks. And Asa is with uh, Asia. I'm going to screw it up now. I'm, I'm, I've fallen into the trap, Asia. Uh, I hope I'm safe. <laughs> 
OSHA. Okay. Once I get it wrong, I I, I, I don't have any notes. I, I do use, that too. I, I don't. I usually work without notes, so I have to try to get it right the first time. But we're talking about the book and about the history of Durham. Durham is celebrating its 150th anniversary right about now. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you know that, but it's uh, it was. Uh, I I do I do, and in fact, it was the Centennial Committee that hoped um, with the premiere. Um, so I met some of the people like Shelley Green, who was one of the directors of that uh, Durham 150 program. And it was it's great that the movie is coming out during this year because uh, now other um, schools and different things in Durham are reading the book because they're looking at their history. And this is one story that is... Um, an important chapter in Durham's history. Right. I think uh, it, it it gives you a good background for what went on. Uh, uh, it reminds you that uh, uh, about the Klan and about uh, the, the uh, important industries in Durham, and most specifically, uh, the 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 Duke family. I want to say Buck Duke, but I liked your identity, identifying uh, Buck Duke. Uh, he was the John D. Rockefeller of tobacco, uh, and uh, uh, Rockefeller had oil and he had tobacco. But he he I used to sell tobacco, and he controlled most of the tobacco in the Western Hemisphere at, at, at one time. He and one British company had split the world up, and uh, right. the, the Greenwich Mean. Was was the division, but he was a, he was a character. But in any event, you were saying that uh, and talking about personal issues that uh, Anne did not necessarily want to dwell on personal issues uh, as much as uh, the events of the uh, confrontation with C.P. Ellis and so on. So let, let's let's go back and sort of slip into sure. that because I learned a new word. I had never seen the word ever. Is it charrette? Yes. That's yes. my that's, brand new word. word. Tom, I had never heard that word before. Uh, I started reading about Anne and C.P., and um, it, it's just not used very much. And it was a man named Bill Riddick, who lives in Raleigh, right. um, was the one who really who organized this charrette, which is, a, in this case, it was a 10-day series of meetings that went all day and well into the night, trying to resolve a problem. And in this case, it had to do with desegregating the schools in Durham. And they were technically already desegregated, but um, there was <laughs> that was more in, uh, in word than deed. And there was still a lot of problems with it, and they were under a court order by the um, under the Nixon administration to actually get this moving. And that was in 1971. So the gap between 1954, as you mentioned, when Brown v. Board was handed down by the Supreme Court and 1971, well, that's when the early 70s is when the serious work on desegregation of schools started. And it's it still... There's still a lot of work to be done on that, um, and that's one thing that Anne's relatives who were there talked about at the Durham opening, that uh, 
her da- her granddaughter who she raised and who I hadn't seen since going down there in the 90s. So she was just this little kid, and Anne was always bragging about her. She was an adorable little kid, and now she's a grown woman who talked at the premiere. She was asked by a reporter, uh, what would your grandmother say uh, about this today? And she'd say, we, we still have work to do. And it was her grandmother talking through her um, and that that message is, is very true. But in 1971, the only reason that CP got involved in this charrette process to help bring about desegregation was he was there as a Klan leader to throw a monkey wrench into the work to stop this. But um, that's not what <laughs> that's not what happened because. CP had never really had a conversation with any black people in his life. There was no real conversation. He just hated them. And he was forced to have conversations and listen to black parents speaking about the problems that they were having with their kids in school, how the schools were treating them poorly. And CP realized that this all sounded familiar in the problems that his kids were having. Um, and it wasn't race in his case, it was poverty, and he could identify with with those problems because he experienced them. And Anne, who just loathed CP, was, I think the main thing that, that allowed them to come together was the fact that Anne was first and foremost a Christian. And even though she hated CP, she knew that God made him, and in the movie they have this great line, same God that made you made me. It's in the, tra- it's in the trailer. I, I saw the trailer. Right? Oh, good. Yeah, it, it's in the, exactly the same God made you that made me. So, uh. and, and Anne really lived out her, her Christianity. I mean, that, that was a, a huge factor in it, and she recognized God's creation in CP. Now, that didn't mean she she was going to cut him any slack, but <laughs> she she helped him. She could see he was struggling to reconcile the world that he was now seeing, which was black poor black parents having the same problems that he was having. And she helped him realize that he was being treated badly by the wealthy whites who were slipping him money on the side and that he was just doing their dirty work. And she confronted him on that. And I think you mentioned that earlier about them hugging and crying in each other's arms. That was during the charrette. And Mm -hmm. it was Anne reaching out to CP who had started crying because he was just overwhelmed by all of this. And that's when he really made this break of these black people are reaching out to me and these white people are rejecting me. This world is a different world than what I thought. And that really began this, this friendship. And he wanted to change the Klan to a multiracial group to fight um, the class inequity, make common cause with black workers. And obviously that didn't go anywhere. And, you know, the one thing that's really 
about this story. It's very sad, but CP gave up so much. Um, he, uh, he he is such a good role model in some ways because he the only thing that he had going for him in his life was the clan, and it was his social standing, his social network. And when he left the clan, he ripped up his card, his clan membership card. It's a great scene in the movie that Sam Rockwell just does a great job on. He knew, he, I talked to CP about this, and he said, oh, he knew what he was doing, that he was leaving everything that he had. But he said, well, what do you do when you find out that everything's a lie and you find out what the truth is? You just can't go on pretending. And he's wrong. A lot of people go on pretending uh, because it's, they're not willing to sacrifice what CP was willing to sacrifice. And he, he never fit in anywhere after that completely. Well, so, you you have him uh, yeah. driving you around in the car, you know, and uh, his, his old Buick or whatever it was. And, you know, basically saying he didn't have any friends anymore. Right. And, and, uh, right. And this uh, quote I, that I read from Mary Mevin, uh, she, she was confronting the fact that she had learned the truth, but nobody wanted to hear the truth. They, they much preferred the, the fantasy version. And it also seems like to me that, and I, I never thought about this before, but what CP knew about the, the black race uh, was something like he learned it in a book, and he never confronted actual black people. And that's an no, unusual exactly thing. Right. That's a, but you know that's an unusual usual thing in the South, you know. Uh, in that, uh, I think I told you my best friends until I was six were two young black men who lived a block from me at the edge of the city of Goldsboro, and I didn't think anything one way or the other about it. We we all just were having fun, and then when we started to school, I, that's when I began to learn about the racial relations. This was a long time ago, too. By the way, I'm I stretch back over the over into the segregated period, and. But you, people like you need to write books like this. I'm going to tell you why. We used to have a young engineer here who was very bright, and he came in one day and said, Mr. Kearney, you used to teach school, didn't you? And I said, yeah. He said, well, he had watched the um, the uh, autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. I'm sure you've seen that. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, and he said, uh, now, he, he, was, he really was serious. He said, they didn't really have... Uh, separate water fountains and bathrooms and stuff, did he? And this was a bright guy. I mean, he graduated from state and was going to graduate school at Clemson. And uh, but he didn't didn't know his history, and he he wanted me to tell him that what he had seen in that movie the night before was not true, but in fact it was true. Yeah, and that yeah, that's yeah. the same kind of moment of realization. I mean, CP obviously was older, and he. He knew, um, he was born in 27, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it was the fact that there were separate water fountains that gave him some hope that things should be better for him because he always, he knew that no matter how far he fell in the social world of the South, then he would never be black. He could never be at the very bottom rung. He was at the next rung up. And that was enough for him and, and a lot of people, um, poor white people. But DP was willing to give up whatever little rung he had because 
he believed in doing what was right. He always had. He thought he was doing right. He thought he was being a good Christian in the Klan. And I think that's a good message for people today because so many of us accept the social order, this problem that we still have, um, and think that we're doing right, that we're being good, and yet um, we, we're we as blind to the reality around us as CP was, and it doesn't have anything to do with, with that part, it doesn't have anything to do with class, um, that has more to do with just buying into national mythology. And, you know, we there's a good purpose. People, people all over the world have national mythologies that don't square with their actual history. The problem is when you mistake the, the myth for reality. And it's good to feel proud of your country and, you know, all of that. But you have to come to grips with history at one point or another if you're going to lead a, a truly decent life. And that's what CP did, and he became a union organizer for what was then a predominantly like 80 to 90% black union. And he was fighting. He, he went from being one way I like seeing it in the new scholarly terminology of, of race. He went from being a racist to being an anti-racist. There was no non-racist part because that doesn't really exist if you're just allowing white supremacy, which is still part of the United States because it's just baked into our institutions, then, then you know, you're, we, we as white people, I'm white and uh, I still have these racial ideas that are, that are wrong. I, can't, I bump up against them all the time. And so I'm a work in progress, like everybody else. And CP really got a lot further, a lot faster, and became an anti-racist working for black workers. It's, 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 it's so we, amazing. We need to take a break. So it sounds like, uh, and if, if we need to venture further on this line, we can do it after the break. But it sounds like he, he did achieve redemption, in, in a sense. And so... Uh, yes. Uh, we are talking with uh, uh, the author of The Best of Enemies, Race and Redemption in the New South. Uh, uh, Osha Gray Davidson is the author of this book. He's written a number of books. Uh, in fact, I'd like to talk to you, Osha, sometime about your new book about uh, German uh, infrastructure, I think. is Power infrastructure is what it sounds like it's like, and uh, that would be interesting. But uh, we're going to come back and close our program out. We're going to have five or six minutes left when we come back. Uh, talking about the best of enemies. Now a major motion picture. It will debut across the country on Friday, April the 5th. 953 News Radio 680 WPTF. The Best of Enemies is the name of the book. Osha Gray-Davidson is the author, and he's with us tonight. And we've got about three or four minutes left. And I was telling him this is the point where my interviewer's handbook says, you, you say to your guests, is there any point that we've failed to touch on that you think you would like to talk about? And so here we are, Asa. Uh, Osha. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess it, the one thing is that what you and I were just talking about during the break about the 
the misunderstand or the the not understanding um, the racial ignorance on both sides, and the point that I was that I was making when we were talking, yeah, I think was so important to me learning that um, white people it, it's not it, it's not an equal amount of ignorance because for black people it's a matter of survival to know white people to know and understand the social order um, and so there, uh, there's a, a great African American poet Gwendolyn Brooks who wrote uh, we know the condition of your gum because we have been so long between your teeth which is a line that's always stuck with me um, so that's sort of that's one of the most important parts of, of how the story of the best of enemies Anne and Atwater and CP came about that Anne understood much more about CP and his world than CP did about Anne and her world because she had to and the once CP started learning um, his life became richer because you know, the idea of America, the myth of America is that it's a country uh, where everybody is equal. Well, that wasn't true. And once CP understood that, he started learning about other people, including black people. And he became more authentically American by fighting for justice for all people. And that part of that was fortunately for him getting to know the culture um, of uh, African Americans and I think that's an important lesson that often gets missed that social justice is the most important thing here by far. Uh, social inequities, intergenerational wealth that white people are far more likely to have more money more wealth than, than black people. So challenging that and fighting that. But there are other benefits for white people to fighting that. I mean, the main, the main thing, though, is that, like you pointed out, the word redemption. The CP really was found redemption by becoming an anti-racist, by seeing the world as it was, by confronting hard truths of what America was and, and wasn't, and trying to make a better nation. One of the things these two uh, best of enemies had, and you pointed this out earlier, and then we better, I better, better hang it up for tonight. But, but they had their religion, and it was the same religion as, as Anne said, "You're the same God made you that made me." And that that presents a problem sometimes for people who are uh, at each other's throats uh, in, in, along the way. Maybe they did right. get CP's, CP's form of Christianity was not anything that it seems to me that Christ would have recognized. Um, and the Klan was based on uh, what uh, some scholars are now calling the, the uh, slaveholder Christianity, the slaveholder rule. 